May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be always acceptable to you, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. So today is the third Sunday in Advent, also known as Gaudete or Rejoice Sunday. Joy is a, it's a common theme for this third Sunday. We light the pink candle on the Advent wreath for joy. We'll hear it in our music and in our readings. In Zephaniah, we hear, rejoice and exalt with all your heart, O daughters of Jerusalem. Shout aloud and sing for joy, says the prophet Isaiah. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. And Paul, in his letter to the Philippians, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. And I will confess that right at the moment, I am really struggling with the whole joy thing. I'm probably more in the Scrooge mode of Christmas, bah, humbug. So today's lessons, with both the challenge and the command for us to rejoice, rejoice in the Lord always, again I say rejoice, these lessons aren't always easy to take in. How are we supposed to rejoice on those bad days? when we've experienced loss or sorrow, or are simply overwhelmed by the needs and concerns in our lives and the despair in the world around us. So many of us experience this tension at this time of the year, caught between the relentless Christmas joy and the sadness from the loss of loved ones or friends or loss of health or just aren't in a good place right now. And if you're feeling that way, or you just want to break from the Christmas frenzy, you can come and join me on a quiet service of darkness and light on this Friday, December 21st. It's, it's the longest night of the year. It's when the darkness seems it just might overwhelm us. And we quietly come together, and we pray together, And we hold each other in prayer. And we light candles. We light candles together to lighten the dark. Rowan Williams writes that Advent is both a season of joyful expectancy and it's a season of poverty. The deep poverty of the imagination where we can only stand helplessly before the outrages and miseries of our world. Utterly and totally at loss for a word of meaning, or even hope to speak. So, thank goodness for John, the curmudgeonly Baptist. There's not a lot of rejoicing going on here. He kind of fits my mood. And I like him. He's real and he's honest. So on this third Sunday of Advent, in the midst of all the joy and rejoicing and words and song and cookie baking and tree trimming and Christmas present buying, and we're on our way to Bethlehem. But the fact of the matter is, we can't get to Bethlehem without first having to hear from the prophet in the wilderness calling us back to God calling you and I to repentance. There he is, 
standing knee-high in the Jordan River, yelling at the crowds who came out to be baptized, you brood of vipers. The fact that these harsh, austere words are found in Advent, is, it's rather refreshing. Sometimes I'm right there with John, who seems to want to just set a rocket off and wake everyone up. You brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit worthy of repentance. This is not an emotional, misty-eyed Hallmark commercial. This is a call to a fundamental change of heart and of soul and of mind and behavior. It's a mental and spiritual U-turn. It's a radical clarion call for fairness and justice in a world that at times seems anything but fair or even kind. There's the ongoing incivility and ugly rhetoric in our politics and our society. That's the norm anymore. Over 85,000 children have died of starvation in a country that most of us could not even find on a map. And at least 15,000 children are being held in federal shelters right here in our own country. And as a stark reminder of the dangers these children face, a seven-year-old, seven years old, just died of dehydration and exhaustion. Diedrich Bonhoeffer wrote from his prison cell in Nazi Germany, we have become so accustomed to the idea of divine love and the idea of God's coming at Christmas that we no longer fear, feel the shiver of fear that God's coming should arouse in us. We are indifferent to the message, taking only the pleasant and the agreeable out of it and forgetting the serious aspect that the God of the world draws near to the people on our little earth and lays claim to us. The coming of God is truly not only glad tidings, but first of all, first of all, it is frightening news for everyone who has a conscience. We are on our way to Bethlehem, but there is work to be done. John reminds us that the stakes are high, The people who came out into the wilderness to be baptized and hear John, they did not shy from his bluntness. They responded to the urgency of John's call to return to God. There's a sense of immediacy. We are so near to the kingdom of God. And our response is the same as it was for those crowds 2,000 years ago. What then shall we do? There's a moment that we might think it might be nice if John suggested a revolution, just a small one. But John keeps his advice pretty close to home. Share your extra coat. Take your excess food and feed someone else. Don't take what isn't yours. Be content with what you've been given. Be honest. No matter where you work, whether a tax collector or a soldier or anything in between, 
do that work with integrity. These answers are in keeping with Paul's letter to the Philippians. Live your faith by showing gentleness to all. What shall we do? The people asked the prophet. We want to make this complicated, but perhaps it's just as, just as simple as it sounds, and it's entirely in our reach. Share what we have. Do not cheat another. Do not abuse the power and authority of your position. And some days, I have to admit, I hear him say to me, just try. Just keep trying. Repent. Come back. Begin again. Do what you can. Do it now. In a world where the challenges seem so huge, one wonders how these seemingly small things could possibly make any difference. What shall we do? We focus on our everyday life, right where we're at, right here, and right now, where we work, or where we live, or where we worship, and we do it today, not tomorrow or the next day. We do it now. And it would seem to me that if we just practiced basic justice and goodness, that we would knock the supports out from every out-of-whack, awry, misaligned, upside-down, oppressive system that we have built. For John, this is a repentant life, one that is oriented to the way of the Lord, that life that embodies the way of the Lord, care for each other, and for those who have none. This is the faith that is practiced right here and right now, justice and goodness, in our lives, and in our communities, and in our world. There's nothing magical, and there's nothing mysterious about it. If we follow the way of the Lord, this is our path. This is our call. Bear fruits worthy of repentance, John reminds us. Rabbi Sachs writes that faith is not acceptance of the status quo. Faith is a protest against the world that is, in the name of world that is not yet, but ought to be. The gospel reading ends with the words, with so many exhortations, he proclaimed the good news to the people. And perhaps it seems like an odd choice of words. After a gospel reading of foreboding and unquenchable fire, but Advent asks us, John asks us, to see and speak truthfully, to deal honestly with our troubled times, to share in the righteous anger of a God who will save the lame and gather the outcast. John came to prepare the way for the Lord, pointing, pointing to something momentous about to happen. The angel sang, I bring you tidings of great joy. A child is about to be born one who will heal the sick, give sight to the blind, bring light into your life and into my life and to every corner on this earth. This, this is the good news we preach. 
the hope that sustains us, a vision toward which we work. We are yearning for Christ to come, the one who will open his arms to love the entire world. And that is why, in good times and bad times, we light our pink candle, we sing our songs, and we rejoice. Amen.